Well, uh, welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. It's a joy uh, to be here with you this morning. Pastor John and Victoria are on vacation, and uh, so you're stuck with me, so I uh, apologize in advance for that. Um, thanks to Julia for your update and for your ministry. I don't know where Julia, where'd you go? Thanks for your update, Julia, and for your ministry. Um, the elders' hearts are so overjoyed with um, the partnership that we're able to have with Marcus and uh, Cloudland Bible Church in the Czech Republic, and we enjoy every uh, monthly video conference that we have with you and Gina. Uh, it's a huge joy, and, and uh, Marcus is a great friend of mine. He and I were exchanging emails earlier this week, and uh, we just look forward to seeing how the Lord will continue to bless our church and uh, use our, us uh, to further his gospel in the Czech Republic. So thank you for that. Uh, I wanted to start out this morning by, even though John is, Pastor John is absent, just to, to publicly thank him. He's going to be listening to a recording of this later, I'm sure. But pu- publicly thank him for serving us week in and week out by preparing a spiritual meal for us. Uh, I've had a little bit of experience over it in the last week or so, but it's, it's, or the last two weeks, but it's no small task um, to stand before you here this morning. And uh, he works hard at it, so I wanted to thank him publicly. I also wanted to let you know that the pulpit ministry uh, at Cornerstone is, is the main priority of the elders. Uh, we spend a fair amount of time in our, uh, in our meetings talking about the pulpit ministry. And we've even begun a, a preaching lab us to be the first participant of the preaching lab yesterday morning, the opportunity to kind of preach this message uh, to a number of men, leaders in our church, then receive, stand there, and receive uh, their immediate feedback and input, and it was a huge blessing to me. I really appreciated that. And so uh, if the sermon bombs this morning, you can blame them. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin, all right? Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how you use it to speak into our lives. And God, I, I confess that I am inadequate to the task that is before us. But we pray, God, that as we look into your word, that you would speak a message to us, that we would be challenged to examine our hearts, that we would be challenged in our understanding and our knowledge of you, and that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I just want to give a little bit of personal context to the message that I'm bringing you this morning. The Lord has used this particular passage to really minister to me uh, over the last number of months, in a deeply personal way. And so I wanted to share this, uh, which, which really sprung out of a devotional. I wanted to, spare, uh, to share this with you in sermonic form. So personal context, this was about a year and a half ago, uh, summer of 2013. I, w- I was a new elder along with Francis and Hyun. I've been doing it for about six months, no previous experience. And we had had a lot of work to do. There were a lot of issues to address in the church, and one of the big tasks was to find a senior pastor for our church. And uh, at this point in time in the church's history, we didn't have anybody on staff. We had a number of great candidates to look at, but no clear front runner. And it obviously, it was a, a huge decision, right? A critical decision, one of the biggest decisions I was ever part of. And I was afraid of failure. I was afraid of making a wrong choice. I was afraid of being unsuccessful. At home, personally, my wife and I, we had three kids. They were five and three and a newborn. Sophia had just been born. She's about a month old. And so my life was a little bit nuts last year. And so just out of desperation, I was going to the Lord uh, and to his word for help. And he brought to my mind a little passage that I had memorized way back in college. So, you know, 20 years ago or so, I had memorized this passage uh, out of context, uh, admit to that, but never knew how it fit in the scriptures. And uh, the passage is this, 2 Chronicles 16.9, you have it in your outline there. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And so, 
going back a year and a half ago, I wanted to study this passage further to learn more about it. And so we're going to see today what it means to have a heart that is completely the Lord's. Right? And you see here on your uh, handout, and I apologize for all the stuff that's on there, but we're going to be building towards point number six on the back page. That's kind of the, the goal and the direction of our message. We're going to be building towards point number six, have a heart that completely belongs to the Lord. So go ahead, if you haven't already, turn with me to 2 Chronicles 16. And while you're doing that, I wanted to give you a little historical context about this passage. Okay, I have a little uh, a audio-visual that we're going to show in just a second. Not quite yet, but in just a second, I'll have audio-visual, a little visual mainly, um, to give a little bit of context. So the historical context is it's about 900 years B.C. And the reason I'm giving the context in, in so much detail is that uh, in our passage for today, some of the main characters are kings of Israel. And so I wanted to give a little bit of context about that. So it's 900 years B.C., a little bit after Israel split into the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. You recall that Saul was the first king of Israel. That's from 1 Samuel 8 and 9. Saul was chosen as the first king of Israel, somewhat reluctantly, uh, but the Lord was ministering to the people of Israel and, and agreeing to their request. And then after that, David was chosen as king because of Saul's disobedience. That's in uh, 1 Samuel 15. David was then followed by his son Solomon. But because Solomon had so many wives, and he's let his wives turn his heart away from the Lord, God took the kingdom of Israel away from King Solomon. So keep your finger in 2 Chronicles 16 here, and flip with me back to 1 Kings 11. Just a couple of verses to give us a little bit of context. So 1 Kings 11, and verses 3 and 4, and 11 and 13. So 1 Kings 11, verses 3 and 4, talking about Solomon. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And this is the theme of this morning's message. His, Solomon's heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. Skip down to verses 11 and 13. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, you have not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Verse 12, Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So Solomon's son was a guy named Rehoboam, and it was under Rehoboam's reign that the kingdom of Israel was split into two. So only the southern tribe of Judah remained loyal to Rehoboam and the Davidic line. And the other northern 12 tribes made Jeroboam their king. Jeroboam was a servant. So Rehoboam, Solomon's son, right, part of the Davidic line, part of the line of Christ, according to God's promise, was ruler over the southern kingdom of Israel. And Jeroboam, who was one of the sons of Solomon's servants, was ruler over the northern kingdom. So Jeroboam was the son of Solomon's servant. He was a, a, a valiant warrior and an industrious man. Jeroboam was an evil king. He proved himself to be an evil king. And he reigned over the northern kingdom for 22 years. And after him, his son Nadab uh, succeeded him for two more years. But when Nadab was ruling, after his second year of reign, there was a military coup. And Basha, whose name either means listens to Baal or Baal hears, that's an idol, he overthrew Nadab and he killed him. And then he wiped out all of Jeroboam's descendants. So Basha is king over the northern ten tribes of Israel, 
and that's called Israel, and he's the antagonist, one of the characters in our message today. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, so there's Jeroboam, who we just talked about, and Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, he reigned 17 years. And Rehoboam had a son, Abijam, who reigned for three years, and he had a son named Asa that eventually became king. King Asa is our main character for today's message. So we're going to see, maybe hopefully we have a, the map slide, we'll take a look at it here. And you also have in your outline uh, a list of the cast of characters. There's four or five main characters in our historical narrative today. And since their names may be unfamiliar, I just wanted to provide it to you as a guide. The Lord, of course, and his son Jesus Christ is the central character in all of the Bible. And we'll be learning today about the Lord's character as well as examining our own hearts. So you have on your list here, uh, I think the first one here is Asa, right? Asa, king of Judah. And he is the king of the southern kingdom. He's the great-grandson of Solomon. He's our main character. He's our flawed protagonist. And you see that he's on the bottom. And I put him on the bottom just to kind of correspond with where he was uh, geographically. He is the ruler of the southern kingdom of Judah that you see there in yellow. All right? King Asa, just a little bit about him. In 2 Chronicles 14, which is this two chapters um, before the chapter we're looking at, in the battle against Zerah, right, Zerah was an Ethiopian ruler. And Zerah commanded an army of a million men. But King Asa, with his army, was victorious over this million-man army because he relied on the Lord. It was a huge victory in chapter 14 of 2 Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles 15, King Asa responded well, and he listened to the admonition of one of the prophets, Azariah. And as a, as a result of that, King Asa removed the idols from the nation of, of Judah. He restored the altar of the Lord, and he sacrificed to God. He led the people and their hearts back to the Lord. He also removed his mother from her official position because she worshipped idols. So that's King Asa. He's our main character today. King Basha, who's king of the northern uh, uh, part of Israel, the northern kingdom in blue, he's the antagonist in this historical account. As I mentioned before, he, he became king through a military coup. He overthrew the people before him. He killed Jeroboam's son and all of Jeroboam's descendants. The northern kingdom was considered apostate because they had turned their backs on God, and they worshipped and served idols rather than God. And they also refused to recognize the lineage of King David. King Basha, in this historical narrative for, for chapter 16, he's going to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Our third character today, he's not on, this, um, he's not on the slide, but our third character on your handout is Hanani. Hanani is a prophet of God, a spokesperson for God. And we'll see later that he confronts Asa in the chapter, and he conveys our main verse for today. He's the one who spoke the main verse that we're going to look at today, verse 9. Hanani, I think, uh, was the brother of the prophet Nehemiah. And then finally, Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad is the king of Syria. Syria is a pagan nation. You see that here in the upper right-hand corner, also called Aram. Right? It's the northern kingdom. Ben-Hadad is king of Aram. Okay, so those are our uh, main characters for today, including the Lord, of course. All right, if you just take a look at your outline really fast, I just want to talk about where we're going. This morning, we're going to talk about the fact that God wants to strongly support those whose heart belongs to him. And we're going to take a look at six ways that you can have a heart that completely belongs to the Lord. We'll see that we need to define success the same way that God defines success. We'll see that we need to pursue biblical success in a way that honors the Lord. We'll see that we need to seek counsel and wisdom from godly sources. Number four, we need to, we'll see that we need to embrace trials as instruments of God's grace. 
Number five, we'll see that we need to rely on the Lord to bring the success. And number six, kind of our main point, and we'll end with that, uh, is we need to have a heart that completely belongs to the Lord. We'll talk about what that means. All right, so I'm going to read the passage. Second Chronicles chapter 16, you can read along with me in your Bible. And I'll give a, a few comments just uh, uh, by way of explanation as we go. Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 1. Follow along with me in God's word. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. So, just to step back a second, it's King Asa's 36th year as king, right? And King Basha, actually, let's throw the slide up there again, if you don't mind, Caroline. Uh, just because I think it, it will help us understand what's going on here. Um, so King Basha from the north is now laying siege to the kingdom of the south, to King Asa. Right? It says that King Basha of Israel came up against Judah and fortified Ramah. And the word up here in verse 1, it's more of a topographical adjective rather than a geographical one. Right? The reason I say topographical is because the elevation of Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet up. So just a little bit lower than Denver, if you, if you will. And um, so even though King Basha's army is traveling south to attack Judah, they travel up. Does that make sense? Ramah, it's not on the map here, but Ramah is just five miles north of Jerusalem. So there's a, there's a fair amount of proximity that you see. And you see that Jerusalem is pretty far north in this kingdom. So the, the kingdom from the north, King Basha, is attacking the kingdom from the south. Okay? Let's go back to the text. Verse 2 and 3. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus. That's kind of up in the right-hand corner. And he said to them, verse 3, let there be a treaty between you and me. Some translations will say there is a treaty between you and me, but let there be a treaty between, between you and me, as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So King Asa is in the south, and he's being attacked, right? And his strategy is to outflank King Basha, Right? Because King Basha is attacking from the north. And his strategy is to go further north, right, to Syria, Damascus, and Aram in the right-hand corner by bribing King Ben-Hadad, right, to attack King Basha and Israel. Right? And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to... Actually, I have a little pointer here. Let's see if this works here. Can you see that? So what King uh, Asha is doing is he's getting attacked from King Basha from the north of Israel. He's attacking uh, Jerusalem and Ramah. And so King Asa is going up to... Uh, king Ben-Hadad of Aram and say, hey, I'm in trouble. Will you attack King Basha and distract him so that he'll withdraw from me? Does that make sense? All right. Verses 4, and, four to 6. Back to the text. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel of the north. And they conquered Ijon, Dan, Abel-Maim, and, and the store cities of Natali. When Basha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and stopped his work. Then King Asa brought all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Basha had been building. And with them, he fortified Geba and Mizpah. So just to summarize, King Asa's strategy worked, right? King Ben-Hadad accepted the bribe, and he attacked King Basha to the north of Israel, and he forced King Basha to withdraw his attack on Judah in the south, and he had to defend himself. Then King Asa was able to plunder the fortifications that Basha had left at Ramah. So... Hopefully you're able to follow that. Let's go on to verses 10, 7 to 10. And this is going to include our main passage for today in verse 9. Verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, a prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and he said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord, your God, 
Therefore, the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord, this is the main verse, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the other people at the same time. So obviously here, King Asa was not expecting to hear this response from the prophet, and it made him very angry. We'll talk a little bit more about this. And then just to finish out the chapter for context, verses, verse 11. Now the acts of Asa from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the king of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but physicians. Verse 13, so Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in his own tomb, which he had cut out for himself in the city of David, and they laid him in the resting place, which he had filled with spices of various kinds, blended by their perfumers, and they were made a very great fire for him. All right, we can take the map away. Thank you. All right, it's great. So let's focus just for a minute on the first part of verse 9. That's our main passage for today. And this verse, as I mentioned, it's an amazing verse to me. All right, so let's turn our attention there. Verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So if you're reading from the, NSV, from the NASV, that's what it says. If you're reading from the ESV, I know a lot of you do, it has a slightly different translation, and it says this, For the eyes of the Lord, Yahweh, run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. And on your outline here, it has a little bit of a word study. And I just want to make the case for the NASB's translation here. The word that the ESV translates as blameless in the Hebrew is the word shalem. And it means complete or whole or perfect. Right? You have that in your outline here. And I just want to give a couple of examples of why I favor the NAS over the ESV in the translation of this word. And I think you have those verses here. Genesis 15.6. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Genesis 15.6, using the word shalem. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The word complete is the word shalem. Deuteronomy 25.15, you shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So that word here for full is the word shalem. Okay? The NIV translates uh, verse 9 from ch chapter 16 as this. It says, those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And so I think the NAS's tr uh, translation, its rendering is a little bit more accurate here, and so uh, I, I favor that one. Just wanted to, to clarify that. All right, again, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And what's amazing to me is smack dab in the middle of this narrative, right, is this profound verse that the Lord, through his spokesman, the prophet, tells us. And he wants to tell us something about his character, right? There's a narrative, right? This, most of this chapter is a narrative, right? Asa did this, Basha did that, Ben-Hadad did something else. And now suddenly, in the midst of that narrative, right, just seemingly dropped into the middle of it, God himself is really revealing something about his nature to us. And we see here, it's an anthropomorphic description, right? It says the eyes of the Lord. Anthropomorphic description. That the Lord Yahweh is continually and actively seeking all over the world people to support. 
the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, right? He's actively seeking to support people, not just support people, but to strongly support people. The Hebrew word here is to strengthen, to prevail, to harden, to be strong, to become strong or courageous, to grow firm or resolute. And what was so encouraging to me is that the God of the universe has a heart desire. He has an inclination. He has a benevolence. He has a yearning even to strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. This truth was a great encouragement to me, and I hope it encourages you too. God wants to strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. So let's go to our outline. Point number one on our outline. God wants to strongly support those whose hearts belong to him. And so here are six ways you can have a heart that is completely his. Number one, define success the same way that God defines success. Verses 7 to 9. So King Asa, right? This is what he's trying to do. He's seeking out to avoid war with King Basha. That was his definition of success. I've got to end this conflict, right? We're, our, our nation is being laid siege. We're being attacked. I need to end this conflict. I'm sure that he thought it was a noble goal, right? It sounds noble, right? Who wants war? We saw that in chapter 14, Asa had led his army in a battle against the Ethiopian army of a million men, and he was victorious. But I'm sure even though he was victorious, that he wasn't eager for more war. Who's eager for more war? In chapter 16, he was successful in ending this conflict with Basha, right? He was able, through his bribery of King Ben-Hadad, he ended the conflict, right? But was he successful in God's eyes? Was he? No, he wasn't. King Asa failed. So let's look at verse 9 again. Verse 9 is essentially an indictment against King Asa about his failure, right? It says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. So the Lord is telling King Asa through the prophet Hanani, he's saying, you blew it. King Asa, you blew it. You failed. You messed up. God had presented him with an opportunity to do the Lord's will, but he failed. We saw that in chapter 14 and chapter 15, King Asa, if he was getting report cards, he would have received a letter A. Chapter 14 and 15. He relied on the Lord. He beat Ethiopia. He relied on the Lord. He removed the idols. But here in chapter 16, his grade was an F. Verse 9 reminds me of Joshua 1.8. Joshua 1.8 says this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. One of the things that King Asa failed at is that he failed to define success in the same way that God defines success. And let's look closer at what King Asa missed out on. There were two huge consequences, right? It says in verse 7 at the end, it says, Because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. And then in the second part of 9b, it says, Because you have acted foolishly in this, indeed, from now on you will surely have wars. So the Lord is saying here that because King Asa did not define success in the same way the Lord defined success, he missed out on two blessings. Number one, King Asa missed out on the opportunity to conquer Aram, Syria. And number two, he missed out on the opportunity to conquer King Basha. If he had had a war against Basha, rather than than distracting Basha and bribing King Ben-Hadad like he did, he had the opportunity to maybe even overthrow King Basha 
and unite the kingdom of Israel. But he, but he missed out on the opportunity, and he will continue to have wars. So believers whose hearts completely belong to the Lord will define success the same way that the, that the Lord defines success. So my question for you, how are you doing in this? Is your measuring stick of success the same as the Lord's? Or do you have a different standard? My disclaimer is this. There's nothing wrong with having goals. But we need to make sure that our goals are biblical and that our goals are subjugated to God's will. To that end, here's a list of successes that are not necessarily successes. And I think that's letter A on your outline here. Beware of successes that are not necessarily successes. And what I mean by that is that our culture teaches us, it trains us to strive for certain things. Certain culturally defined successes that are not necessarily biblically defined successes. What do I mean by that? Number one, students, right? There's a number of students. Usually they sit up here, but I guess they're over here now. Students, right? Receiving an A grade from a teacher is not necessarily the sign of academic success in God's eyes. I can't can't believe I just said that. I'm an Asian man, and I said that a letter A is not necessarily success in God's eyes, right? But God's definition of academic success is faithful stewardship. Luke 12, 48, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. So letter A grade is not necessarily a definition of of success in God's eyes. Number two, financial success or career success. Whether it's making a sale, getting a deal done, everyone wants financial stability or solvency. But we do not believe in a health and wealth gospel. God did not guarantee financial or career success. He didn't guarantee to us financial stability. Matthew, tw- Matthew 8.20, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has what? Nowhere to lay his head. The Lord doesn't guarantee financial success to any of us. So we must not define financial success in that way. Number three, relationships. Singles. Just because a dating relationship doesn't end in marriage it doesn't mean it's failure in God's eyes. And I've spoken with many people over the years who've, who've kind of bemoaned their quote-unquote failed relationships. Have you heard of that phrase before? I've had a number of failed relationships. Right? But God doesn't define a dating relationship in the same way. Now, I believe that the purpose of dating or courting, whatever you like to call it, that the purpose of it is marriage. Yes, that is the direction for sure. And more specifically, the purpose of dating someone is to see if it's the Lord's will for you to marry that person. Right? And it's a process, a long process. It should be fun. It should be engaging. It should be encouraging. It should be challenging. And it should be Christ-exalting. It should involve prayer and mutual sharpening. And in the end, if you determine that the two of you should not get married, well, in my mind, that would be a success in God's eyes. That's not a failed relationship. A failed relationship is one where people fail to encourage one another. They fail to help each other towards Christ's likeness or whether they fall into sin. That's a failed relationship. So, Let's just make sure that we define success or failure in a relationship in the same way that the Lord does. Next category, family success. For families, how do you define success? Is it the number of kids that you have? Is it parenting goals, keeping your children under control? Is it even the salvation of your kids? Is that how you define success? Now, don't get me wrong. We hope and we pray and we yearn that the Lord would save our kids, that our kids would come to know the Lord. But salvation belongs to the Lord, right? Successful parenting is a Christ-exalting, gospel-centered marathon of evangelism and stewardship. And the Lord will hold me accountable to this for the way that I parent. But salvation of my kids, that belongs to the Lord. 
The next one, there's two more. The next one, a good day. How do you define a good day? Believers whose hearts completely belong to the Lord will define success the same way that God defines success. And this truth changed the way I looked at every single day. So usually when I'm, when I'm leaving work, on the way home from work, I call my wife, right? Just to check in with her. Hey, honey, how's it going? It's the first thing that I say. How was your day? Right? She would ask me that question. How was your day? Oh, I had a good day. I need to confess to you that how I defined a good day was wrong. Right? The way that I used to define a good day was, oh, a good day was free of drama, free of conflict. I had easy patience that didn't demand a lot of time from me. Right? I worked with competent staff that made my life as a physician easier. That was how I defined a good day before. But is that how the Lord defines a good day? It's not. What does he say? Ephesians 5.16, Make the most of your time because the days are evil. Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We need to redeem the time because the days are evil. King Asa thought that he had had a good day. He thought that he was successful. But the Lord rebuked him and told him that he was not as successful as he thought. So how does the Lord define a good day? Right? How do I need to define a good day? Did I exemplify Christ in my workplace? Was I a good testimony? Was I sensitive to gospel opportunities? Did I fight temptation and sin? Did I have Christ-like responses to the conflict that the Lord brought into my life? Not conflict avoidance, but did I have Christ-like responses to those conflicts? That brings us to our last example of a success that's not necessarily a success. Number six, conflict avoidance or discomfort avoidance. And this is a huge weakness for me. My wife... She can attest to that. Discomfort avoidance is a huge weakness for me. I could go on and on for a long time about our culture of convenience and how there are so many quote-unquote advances and services available for my comfort and my convenience. Right? Have you guys heard of TaskRabbit? Right? TaskRabbit is a website. You can pretty much assign anybody to do any task that you want them to do. If you want them to stand in line for you, you can, you can assign somebody a task to stand in line. Stand in line for me so I can buy an iPhone. Stand for a couple of days, I'll pay you. Right? I even saw something called a, a motorized ice cream cone. Right? Because it's too much work for you to turn the ice cream cone around before it melts. So you put it in there, you turn the button, and it turns it for you. <laughs> Can you believe that? Right? It's all about my convenience. It's all about my comfort. Right? But the Lord has called us to suffer for the gospel. To take up our cross daily and to follow him. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? persecuted. So how do I reconcile that with our culture of comfort and convenience? Right? We, we can't. By the way, I just want to call to your attention the prophet Hanani in this historical document. Right? He was a brother of Nehemiah, like I said. But what did the Lord call him to do? Hanani, go and confront the king. Right? Go and tell the king that he failed. He thinks he's celebrating. He's resting on his laurels. He's, he's celebrating with all of his staff and all his kingdom. We avoided war. We're so good. We're so smart. You go tell him that he failed. Was Hanani successful in this? He was, right? He followed the Lord. He was obedient to the Lord. And where did he end up? Verse 10 says, Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this. So, obviously, Hanani's definition of success wasn't based on our comfort or conflict resolution or conflict avoidance. It was based on obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. Hanani's heart belonged to the Lord, and he was successful 
but it cost him his freedom and it probably cost him his life. Right? He was successful. All right, let's keep moving. We're going to move a little bit faster here now, all right? Uh, letter B. Defining success the same way that God defines success is incredibly freeing. Brothers and sisters, through the work of Christ on the cross, we have been adopted as his sons and daughters. We've been adopted by the sovereign ruler of the universe. The victory is already won. It's already won. We are all more than conquerors. Whatever conflict, whatever trial, or whatever burden we are facing, we believe, we trust, we have our hope in God's sovereignty. He is in control. The outcome is not up to us because he is sovereign over our lives. And when we define success in the same way that the Lord defines success, we focus not on the outcome that we cannot control, but on the process, the journey. And this is what is so freeing. I just worry about the things that I can control. I don't worry about the outcome. I worry about my attitude, my heart, my faith, my actions, my hope. And I let God take care of the outcome. So in my personal context of the pastoral search process, right, about a year ago, I was afraid of failing. I was afraid of making the wrong decision. But once I put my trust in God's sovereignty, and once I aligned my definition of success with his, that the Lord would bring his choice of the perfect pastor for our church, which I believe he did, my burden was lifted, and I could focus on pursuing a process that honored the Lord and leave the outcome to God's sovereign plan. Brothers and sisters, here's my question for you. What conflict, what conflict or what burden are you carrying right now? Everybody has one or, or some. What conflict, what burden are you carrying right now? Are you pursuing your own version of success, like King Asa? Or are you pursuing the Lord's version of success? What blessings might you be missing out on by pursuing your version of success rather than the Lord's? If you have a heart that completely belongs to the Lord, you will define success the same way that God defines success. Number two, you will pursue biblical success in a way that honors the Lord. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this point, but what had happened in verse two is that King Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord, and he used those things to pay off Ben-Hadad, king of Aram. Right? In order to prevent war, he made a covenant with a pagan, idolatrous nation, and he bribed them by taking silver and gold from the Lord's house. Right? And I'm sure it made sense to him. I'm sure that he invoked, I, I use this all the time, desperate times call for desperate measures. Right? I'm sure he invoked that axiom. But it was exactly this type of pragmatism and small compromise that doomed Asa to failure. He took the riches that were set aside for the Lord and he used them to give to a, an idolatrous nation. Right? Now, the Lord, he doesn't need those riches. He doesn't need those things. The God who spoke the universe into existence the God who has immeasurable resources in the spiritual realm and in the world, he doesn't need those riches. He doesn't need silver or gold. But what Asa forgot was that those riches were meant to be reminders to him and to his people that they need the Lord, that the Lord is the one who provides, that the Lord is the one who deserves our first fruits and our best. So here's a safeguard. When we define success the same way that the Lord defines success, then we'll be more prone to pursue success in a way that honors the Lord. Point number three, if you have a heart that completely belongs to the Lord, you will seek counsel and wisdom from godly sources. I'm certain that King Asa had advisors, right? King, kings and rulers always have advisors, chief of staff, counselors, chamberlains, prefects, whatever you want to call them. And they either gave him unbiblical advice, which he followed, or he ignored their sound advice. You know who he didn't ask? He didn't ask the Lord. He didn't ask Hanani the prophet. And he could have. 
In chapter 15, we saw that King Asa listened to the prophet Azariah. We don't have time to look at it, but he listened to the prophet Azariah. Too often in our own lives, we seek counsel from our friends. And because they're our friends, they want to affirm us. They want to validate us. They don't want to strain our friendship by disagreeing with us. And so I just have here four things about asking for counsel and wisdom from godly sources. Letter A, ask intelligently. Don't just ask your friends, okay? Ask your care group leader. Ask your elders. Proverbs 19.21 says this, Listen to counsel and accept discipline, that you may be wise the rest of your days. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Hebrews 13.17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they will keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. So ask the right people. Don't just ask your friends. Number, number B, ask early. Ask early. Don't wait until after you've made your decision to ask for counsel. This happens all the time. Don't wait to ask you after you're engaged to ask your friends or your care group leader, hey, do you think I should marry this person? Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. So ask intelligently, ask early, ask often. Proverbs 15, 22, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Proverbs eleven fourteen: where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. And just the last point on this, ask easy. Ask easy. What I mean by this is make it easy for people who you're asking for counsel, make it easy for them to tell you what you don't want to hear. I know that you're already asking them, but take it a step further by granting them permission. Say, listen, I really value your insights, and it's more important to me that you give me your input than just agreeing with me. I want you to feel free to let, you, to let me know if you think I'm making a mistake here. So ask easy. Proverbs 27, 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. All right, number four. Embrace trials as instruments of God's grace. Embrace trials as instruments of God's grace. So people whose hearts belong to the Lord completely will embrace trials as instruments of God's grace. I don't want to minimize the magnitude of the trial that Asa faced. This is war, right? War is a big deal. He was probably just chilling in his chambers when his servants or advisors ran in and said, King Asa, Basha has taken over Ramah. He's using it to lay siege to Jerusalem. He's five miles away. What are you going to do? Right? So I know that there is intense pressure. There's intense weight and responsibility. And we've seen that Asa has failed in a number of fronts. And, he didn't, and the last thing he didn't do is he didn't embrace this trial as an instrument of God's grace. He didn't stop to consider what the Lord might be doing in this trial, how the Lord might be using this to bless him even, to increase his faith, to grow him. He just saw it as a problem that he needed to fix. And because of that, he missed the opportunity, as we saw, to conquer Aram. He missed the opportunity to, to unite the kingdom of Israel. James 1, 2 through 5. Familiar passage. Consider it all joy, my brethren. Consider it all joy, my brethren when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So it's an, it's an unnatural thing for us to do, to embrace a trial of joy. I understand that, right? The apostle here understands that, and that's why he says, even though you're going through a trial, consider it joy. Don't respond to trials like unbelievers do. Don't even think about trials the same way. An unbeliever has no hope. They don't have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. They're not forgiven. They're not covered with the blood of Christ. Unbelievers, they're already, just by definition, 
on the brink of desperation and despair. Is it any wonder that a trial will send them over? If you are a believer in Christ, then you are adopted as a child of God. Romans 8 tells us that nothing, not even a trial, how big or small, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son for us, but he sacrificed him on our behalf. So we must embrace trials as instruments of God's grace. All right, let's keep moving. Number five. Number five, rely on the Lord to bring the success. We've covered this in various forms already, but look at verse seven again with me here. At the same time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and he said to him, because you have relied on the Lord your, I'm sorry, because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, Therefore, the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. King Asa didn't rely on the Lord to bring them to success. He didn't turn to the Lord to save him and his people. Instead, he turned to a man, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, to save him, to help him. King Asa, he didn't seek refuge in the Lord, but he sought refuge in a pagan country. And I'm not sure exactly why he did this. We can speculate, right? He was so successful in chapter 14 and chapter 15. Maybe it was because he simply wanted to avoid war. Maybe it was because he had enjoyed a prolonged period of peace and he grew complacent. Maybe it was because of his season of life. Maybe he was getting old and tired. He's like, I'm too old for war. Maybe his wife had just had triplets. I don't know, right? I'm not sure, but we know for sure that he relied on the wrong person for success. So who do you turn to to bring success? Is it the Lord? In your finances, who do you rely on? Do you rely on your financial advisor or your accountant? Or do you rely on the Lord? In your relationships, do you rely on your friends? Do you rely on counselors? Or do you rely on the Lord? Students, in your studies, do you rely on yourself? Do you rely on your teachers? Do you rely on your SAT prep course? Or do you rely on the Lord? When you're sick, when you have an illness, do you rely on medicines? Do you rely on doctors and nurses? Or do you rely on the Lord? Look at verse 12 here. In the, 36th, I'm sorry, in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but physicians. When he was sick, he did not seek the Lord, but he instead sought physicians. This hits home to me, doesn't it? Now, there's nothing wrong with seeking a physician or an accountant or a counselor. And we do rely on them in some measure for their expertise and their experience. But the question is, Are we placing our hope, are we placing our trust, our affection, our security in someone else in a way that should only be reserved for the Lord? When we rely on the Lord to bring the success, it maximizes his glory. He gets the credit for resolving the conflict or issue. If I run across a problem at work or at home, and if I figure out a way to solve it, who gets the credit? I do. But if I run across a problem, and I take take just 30 seconds to give it to the Lord, And I asked that the Lord would provide a solution. Who gets the credit now? He does. A couple of examples for you. You remember the story of Gideon's army, Judges chapter 7, right? He was going up against the Midianite army of 135,000 men. Judges chapter 7 verse 2 says this, The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you, you've got 32,000 men, the people who are with you, they're too many for me to give Midian into your hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My power has delivered me. So Gideon's going to go fight against the army. It's 135,000 men. He's got 32,000. God says, you got too many men. If you win the battle, you're going to say, oh, it's because we're so great that we won the battle. I want you to have less men. 
So Gideon whittled it down to 10,000. 10,000 10, against 135,000. And God said, ah, too many. Whittle it down some more. And so Gideon went up with an army of 300 men against 135,000, and he won the battle. Who gets the credit? The Lord. Second example, Joshua chapter 6, the city of Jericho. Right? You guys know this story well. God's instructions on how to conquer this fortified, walled city, thought to be impenetrable. What are God's instructions? Did he say, get all the strongest men, get all your beasts of burden, focus on one point, bring down the wall, and go from there? He didn't say that, right? He said, take the priests, march around the city once every day, blow your horn. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times. And then when you give the signal, blow the horn and make a loud noise, and the walls will fall down. And that's how the nation of Israel conquered Jericho. God resolved these two conflicts. He brought the success, and he made sure that no one would receive the glory except himself. All right. We're building, we've been building to our last point. This is our last point. Verse 6, we want to camp on here for a little bit, okay? If you have a heart that completely belongs to the Lord, you will have a heart that completely belongs to the Lord. So if I bored you to tears up to this point, I apologize. But if you missed any part of the sermon, don't miss this part, okay? Dial in right here with me. I have a comment in my notes here. Slow down, Huey, because this is the main point, okay? We're going to slow down here. If you have a heart that completely belongs to the Lord, you will have a heart that completely belongs to the Lord. Let me explain. Look at how the prophet Hanani confronts King Asa in verse 9 again. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this, Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. The prophet doesn't say, you didn't define success the right way. The prophet doesn't say, you didn't seek biblical counsel the way you should have. He doesn't say, you didn't embrace this trial as an instrument of God's grace. He could have said these things, but he didn't. What does he say? He actually does say you didn't rely on the Lord here. But where does he go? He goes right to the heart issue. Right? He doesn't directly confront or criticize the actions that King Asa took. He confronts Asa's heart. So you see on your outline, points number one through four, maybe, maybe one through five, they're manifestations or indirect signs of a heart that belongs to the Lord. Point number six, this main point, is more of a direct or an intrinsic assessment. If your heart completely belongs to the Lord, it will completely belong to the Lord. It just does, by definition. The prophet said this, King Asa, your heart doesn't completely belong to the Lord. You failed in this. You foolishly allowed your heart to drift away from God, and you blew this opportunity, and now you have to pay the consequences. And so we see here the intersection between heart condition and head condition. Last week, Pastor John, he preached on good deeds flowing out of good doctrine. You guys remember that? He said, our faith produces our fruit. He said, our high calling produces our high conduct. Our worship of God produces our works for God. So this week is a corollary to that. You see, when our heart is completely his, that means that we're absolutely consumed with who God is and what he has done. When our heart is completely his, it means that Christ is the, the object of all of our affections. He's the object of our loyalties and our desires. And when this happens, points number one through five, they'll happen automatically. So number A under letter six, under, uh, letter A under number six, Gospel motivation produces gospel motion. Gospel motivation produces gospel motion. And how do we get there? Number one, we need to remove idols. Right? 
Now, most of you guys are not bowing down to idols in your life. Let's define what an idol is biblically. An idol is anything that competes with God for our affections. How do you know if you have an idol? You'll sin if you, in order to get it, right? Or you'll sin if you don't get it. Those are some common definitions that we use. Anything that competes with God for our affections is an idol or something that you will sin in order to get or something that you'll sin if you don't get it. Another way to know if you have an idol is what do you think about most in your life? What are the thoughts that go through your mind before you fall asleep? What are the thoughts that go through your mind when you wake up? What, are the, what is that thing that is occupying your mind that you're spending a lot of time on in your thoughts? Oftentimes, that is an idol or related to an idol. Ezekiel 14.3 says this, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. And there are a number of good things that occupy our hearts. There's a number of socially acceptable idols. We don't have time to get into all of them. But here are some examples of socially acceptable idols. Health. Right? You've heard that saying before. It's been a rough year, but at least you have your health. Oftentimes that's an idol. Family can be an idol as well. Right? Oh, it's important for you to spend time with your family, right? They're the most important thing. All right. So number one, remove idols. Number two, look to Christ. Look to Christ and what he has done. Keep the good news of Jesus Christ. Just as we're learning in our First John Bible study, everything concerning the word of life, keep that in the front of our minds and in the seat of our hearts. And that's how gospel motivation will produce gospel motion. And this is really the heart of the Christian life, right? This is how the passage helped me so much. It's an everyday examination, a constant minute-to-minute examination. Is my heart completely his right now? And this is how Christianity is really not a religion. It's not a list of rules and regulations. It's, it's a relationship with the God of the universe who sent his only son to die in my place and to give me forgiveness, to give me uh, the righteousness that only God can attain. And then because we receive these things out of tribute to him, out of love for him, we live our life to, to manifest his glory. This is how gospel motivation produces gospel motion. If your heart is growing in this, along with mine, I praise the Lord. We're all in this together. If you don't know, if you have this kind of relationship with the Lord, I'd invite you to speak with somebody about it. We have pastors here. We have elders here, care group leaders, anybody. Speak with someone about it. Let, day, let today be the day of your salvation. And we'd love to help you grow in your relationship with the Lord. All right, let's try to wrap this up a little bit here. So as I was meditating on having a heart that completely belongs to the Lord, I wondered about this issue of, of ownership. I want to have my heart belong to the Lord completely. So let me think about how God can own this. And so the contrarian in me says this, well, doesn't God already own my heart? And we see that on our outline here, ownership of heart, right? Let it be. Number one, he owns it originally. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord, then all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So as sovereign creator, the Lord has a right to own our lives and our hearts. Doesn't he own it already? Romans 9 says, doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the clay what he wants? Right? So he owns it originally. Number two, he owns my heart redemptively. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So God owns our heart redemptively. He owns it originally, right? He created it. He made it. He owns it. 
and he owns it redemptively. God sent Christ as a ransom, as a propitiation, as a payment to purchase the elect. So he already owned our heart sovereignly, but then he went and purchased it again with the blood of Christ. So there's a double ownership here. You guys see that? A double ownership. He owns this two times over. And yet that is not enough because he wants our hearts to be his volitionally. That's, number, that's letter number three. He wants our hearts volitionally. What does that mean? Voluntarily. He wants it to be our own will giving our hearts to him completely. Turn with me really fast. We'll take a look at this. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's worth taking a look at. The great Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And verses 5 and 6. We're almost done here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your hearts. Skip down to verse 15. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. He wants your heart. He's jealous for your heart. A couple pages over, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verses 12 to 13. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your own good. You see, brothers and sisters, God owns our heart twice over, but he still wants it volitionally. Why? Because that brings Christ the greatest glory. God could have created us without a will. He could have created us as robots to serve and to worship and praise him forever. And that would give him a certain amount of glory but not as much glory as if we serve and worship and praise him of our own accord. When we respond to who God is and what he has done for us through Christ out of our own volition, then that gives God maximum glory. Here's my illustration. My wife has been teaching our kids uh, to kind of honor and respect their dad. Okay? And so when I come home from work after a long day, if their kids are still awake, my wife will say, Isabella and Christian, tell Daddy, welcome home, Daddy. Thank you for working hard. We love you. And my kids are pretty dutiful, or maybe they're just fearful of discipline, but they parrot this back, right? And so they say, welcome home, Daddy. Thank you for working hard. We love you. And this is great, okay? I appreciate this. It's nice to hear my wife is training up their kids to honor and respect their dad. But every once in a while, when the moon is right and the stars are aligned right, right? Every once in a while, I'll be laying down in bed with the kids. I'll be reading them their Bible story at night to go to sleep. And one of my kids will lean over and will kiss me on the cheek. And I'll say, Christian, what was that for? And he says, because I love you, Daddy. Man, that melts my heart. That melts my heart. Out of his own volition, out of his own accord, spontaneously, on rare occasions, <laughs> he expresses his own love for his father. And I don't think it's too inaccurate to imagine God's heart melting just a little when his children spontaneously express love and affection and appreciation for him. So God wants our hearts volitionally. It brings him maximal glory. All right. Last thing, denouement, postscript. The postscript. Let's take a look at verse 12 again. Back to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. We'll, we'll end with this. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 12. 
And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So this is the 39th year of his reign. This is three years later. Okay, the beginning of chapter 16 is the 36th year, and now in, in verse 12, it's three years later. We see the loving kindness and graciousness of the Lord. Even after King Asa had failed, the Lord brought disease to Asa in an attempt to bring Asa's heart back to himself. Right? Look at these two words in here. Yet even. You see that in verse 12? Yet even. Those two words, they, wow, they really ministered to me. Because you see the patience and the benevolence of the Lord. You see his inclination to strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. Even when we fail, here's God beckoning us back to himself. Yet even. Right? King Asa had failed, and yet the Lord is, after King Asa's you know, dramatic failure, here's the Lord. I'm going to bring this trial into your life. I'm going to bring this disease so that your heart will come back to me. So brothers and sisters, what trials has the Lord placed in your life? out of his kindness, out of his benevolence? What kind of illnesses has he placed in your life to coax your heart back to him completely? What kinds of illnesses have you had to deal with? How about your family? So often we think of illness and we think of disease, we're blinded by it. We're blinded by the trials of it. We're blinded by the difficulties, uh, the difficulties of it. We think that God is somehow punishing us. I'm sure that Asa thought that God was somehow punishing him. But we don't see the Lord's loving kindness. We don't see his grace and the blessing that can come through illness. Those two words, yet even, yet even, it means that God was being gracious to Asa, and he's gracious to you and me as well. And here's the last thing. Despite King Asa's failure, the scripture remembers him favorably. It's kind of like King David. David, King David, he was an adulterer, right? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered Bathsheba's husband. And yet, how does scripture remember him? He remembers him as a man after God's own heart. In 1 Kings 15, verse 11, the scripture remembers Asa in a way too. And it says that this, 1 Kings 15, 11, Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. In verse 14 it says, But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. So despite King Asa's failures here, the Lord and the scriptures remember him favorably. Because we're all like King Asa, Right? There are times when we're walking with the Lord and our heart is completely like his and, the, and our heart is completely his. It's like Asa in chapter 14 and 15. We get a, la, a letter A grade. And there's sometimes when we fail like King Asa did in, in chapter 16. But remember that the Lord has a desire. He has an inclination. He has a yearning to strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Is your heart completely his? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again so much for your word this morning. We thank you for the reminder, the encouragement, the admonition. And we pray, God, that our hearts would have a direction towards you, that would have a yearning, a desire to belong completely to you. We pray, God, that you would help us to see, help us to recognize the idols of our hearts, that we would renounce them, that we would repent of them, and that we would replace it your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that you would help us as your people, as Cornerstone Bible Church, to have a heart that completely belongs to you. For we know that then you will strongly support us, and then you will receive maximal glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name.